0: we
1: Hello freaks and welcome to Radical Research. <laughs>
0: Love, a of bitch! She makes a a fucking bitch. I'm a fucking god. I'm a fucking with a fucking a fucking god. I'm a fucking god. a fucking a and the dust door always there The best is still dead It's actually all Let's just make easy, so just a chase This is that you have to will go
1: That's Anna Cruzes from their 1988 debut Suffering Hour and a song called Frigid Bitch. And this is Radical Research episode 34. How about that?
2: I mean, that is, I was almost going to say that it borders on early sadist levels of mania, but I think it competes with it pretty heartily, actually. (laughs) Um, That is just, yeah, balls out madness.
1: I, the the reason, Yeah, I think the reason we picked it is because it it's not exactly typical of Anna Cruz's. Certainly, Suffering Hour is their rawest, most vicious album, uh, without any doubt. And Frigid Bitch stands out even amongst that crowd. So <laughs> I love it. And then we're talking about Anna Cruz's, obviously. This is a St. Louis band. Their discography ranges from 88 to 93. We're going to cover all four albums. Uh, and then a little postscript that happened just a few years ago. I don't know what your introduction to Anacruzis is, actually, but I and we'll talk about that in a second. I do remember, even though there was a lot of hype on their Annihilation Complete demo in, like, 87, like when I was starting to read fanzines and everything, this tape was apparently in a lot of people's tape decks. People were talking very highly about this obscure Midwest band. And um, I was doing some tape trading at that time, but it was all I could do to really keep up with the album releases happening in 86, 87, you know. Just a lot coming at you, and and I was trying to keep up on it all. So, anyway, I that tape at that time slipped me by. But when I saw Suffering Hour in a record store in Iowa City in 1988, I got it immediately and I loved it immediately. I mean, it, it was raw and feral. But it also had this hint of sophistication and their twist on this like super aggressive thrash sound was interesting. It was unique. And you could tell they were going to expand their sound. You could tell that this was really not where they were going to stay, right. you know, feet planted firmly in, in this kind of material. I also was a bit intrigued by something on the back. I think even before I listened to it and got it home, I, I remember reading this and it said, um, thank you to our five biggest influences or something. And those influences were Metallica, Slayer, Metal Church, Trouble, and Pink Floyd. There you go. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think at the time, something like Pink Floyd certainly stuck out. Like, oh, that's interesting.
2: Even, uh, you know, the notion of a band being influenced equally by Slayer and Trouble.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, and there is there are some slower, more morose moments that recall Trouble, I suppose, on Suffering Hour. But I, I'd say Trouble and Pink Floyd – are in the peripheral view of well, suffering sure. hour, as opposed to the other three, which you can kind of see you can, you can, you know, the energy and the, the sort of riff of mania of metal Church is there slayer. You hear it all over a frigid bitch. So no need to explain there. And I think Metallica was just an influence on <laughs> nearly yeah, everybody. Played, yeah. Playing this kind of stuff back then. So, well, um, and you know, one of the
2: things that distinguishes the first two Anacrucis records for me too, is the fact that they tuned down their guitars. Um, mm. So there, there there was a, a dimension of heaviness um, there um, that you didn't get with a lot of thrash.
1: Yeah they, yeah, they were definitely on the heavier end of the spectrum, and, and you're right, they were detuning. What was your introduction? I, I, I'm assuming it wasn't Suffering Hour.
2: No, I mean, dude, when I was in the second grade, I was just raging <laughs> constantly. <laughs> um, no, so um, when I got into metal um, in 91... It, like there was this place in Statesboro called peppermint records and peppermint, pep- peppermint.
1: yeah you have mentioned this uh we talked about it in the old episode yeah that's right peppermint.
2: but i mean like it had a really really like robust selection of underground metal um it was crazy thinking about it now is even crazier really and i have gotten into i was really into death metal and some of the guys that worked at the store were into death metal too but like they were they were largely like guys that had been into thrash and just kind of kept up and they they were very enthusiastic about sort of the the mutations and the the post thrash iterations that were happening and this guy mickey who managed the store i would always go in and i would say you know mickey what do i need to check out and he's like are you ready for something really different you know sure and he's like you got to buy manic impressions and Mm. so i bought it and i didn't get it at first and we'll get into this in a little bit. There's no 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 metal record that sounds anything like Manic Impressions, and I and, and in terms of the production, but just the like the general approach. But over time, it just stuck with me, and then Screams and Whispers came out and just like completely blew me away. And then I really kind of that that sort of like reflected back on Manic Impressions, and helped me to appreciate that even more. And then I got Reason after that. And then I got Suffering Hour much later, like late 90s, early 2000s, I grabbed a vinyl copy on eBay.
1: Were you a little surprised when you heard Suffering Hour? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, I I didn't intentionally not get it, but, you know, I was so caught up in other things. And then at some point I was like, man, I should probably have the first Anacrusis track." Oh, yeah. You know, I was stunned by it, in fact.
1: Yeah, and it's funny. I was going to say earlier that, you know, even though that demo was highly touted and, you know, there were pockets of people, of course, writing about them with with great emotion. And uh, you could tell people really love the band. But on the whole, at the time, they were never really as cool or as talked about or as visible as like a destruction or a dark angel or any of those up and coming thrash bands from 87, 88. That, you know, things were really starting to kind of get swept up in the wake of the big four right and um they can they always were seemingly this sort of odd band out this kind of left field band one of those bands that maybe not quite as much as voivod but they'd get that thing where ah it's too weird for me you know right you'd get that but certainly i think suffering hour can run with the best of them in you know just in straight up messed up fuck your head up thrash Yet at the same time they had songs like Present Tense that we're going to listen to a snippet of that opens the album actually that went a little further. So let's let's see if we hear it. This is uh, this is from Suffering Hour, nineteen eighty eight. Present Tense. There, Yeah, and it's um, funny because that opens the album. You know, yeah. this is this is what they give you. So clearly they were pretty ambitious from the beginning.
2: For sure. And we'll talk about this more in a bit and we'll hear a lot more of it. But Ken is definitely one of Thrash Metal's most extraordinary vocalists.
1: Oh, um, no doubt.
2: And like the, the guy, I mean, just, I mean, I don't know that... I mean, I think about guys like Keith Dean, you know, but like in terms of like sheer dynamics, I don't know that Ken Nardi even rivaled, really. Like his screech, you think of, like Danny Filth and guys like um, Adam from Alchemist owe uh, uh, him a deep debt of gratitude.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, that, that's, a, that's a really good call. Uh, that, that that squeal is just unmatched, unbelievable. Really, yeah. Definitely a precursor to those guys. Oh, yep. for sure.
2: And, and two, like I think you can hear a band that has suckled at the teat of noise records too, because y- you hear, you know, Voivod's cosmic overtones. Um, I think you can hear some of the dark drama of Celtic Frost, um, yep. a- among a lot of other things. But I mean, you know, those bands are sort of lodestars for any, any metal band that's looking to sort of expand its horizons.
1: And I like that despite suffering hours, aggression, and, and manic and manic intensity that you know you can you can already hear this band sort of blossoming and uh, they won't be staying here very long. No. And, but I'm, that's why I'm glad for Suffering Hour too because it's 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 really one of my favorites actually, and and uh, be, because of that reason, it's so singular in their discography. Um, and I and I love the intensity. We talked about Ken Nardy. We'll talk about him a lot uh, throughout this episode. Fair to say that he was kind of the the guiding light in a lot of ways. He always produced the albums except for Suffering Hour, which is credited to the band and a guy named J.J. Johnson, <laughs> whoever that is. You can call me Ray, you can call me Jay. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Hats off to J.J. Johnson for giving this uh, album the uh, extremely raw basement edge it has. I love it. Uh, <laughs> but no, he was, and he was instrumental, obviously, in, in the writing and the producing. Uh, then we have Kevin Heidbredder, who was the second guitarist, a uh, very accomplished musician as well, uh, John Emery on bass. We will talk a lot about the bass role in Ana Cruz as we get into the other albums. Certainly, oh um, my god, yeah, yeah, super and he's he's uh, he's all over cool. those, and he's got his own style and sound. And then a, uh, a full slew of really
2: cool, interesting drummers.
1: Well, that's just it. They yeah, they were one of these bands that always had that one position that was never filled permanently. Always yeah. kind of shifting, sh- kind of that revolving door thing. Yeah, they were one of those. Uh, and we had uh, Mike Owen on their first two albums. That's uh, that's present tense. And uh, let's listen to uh, another pretty great moment from Suffering Hour. This is Fighting Evil. Yeah, again, I, we got to talk about Ken Nardi. I, I, here's something that he doesn't definitely get enough credit for. And that's the harsh melodic vocal duality or dichotomy thing. A lot of people like to point to like Burton Bell of Fear Factory for sort of originating that. Or, you know, uh, if you want to get crafty, you know, maybe Snake from Voivod, maybe Keith Dean from Holy Terror, but those guys were never, they didn't have quite have that black and white dichotomy to it, right? For all the credit Burton Bell seems to get for sort of bringing that into metal, Ken Nardi absolutely brought that in before.
2: Absolutely, that that actually struck me while I was listening, uh, you know, in preparation for the episode, as how truly innovative this was. It's a great, and you're right on the money because Burton Bell does tend to be the guy that gets the credit for that.
1: I think so. Yeah, and there are there are other examples throughout metal's history, certainly in the '80s, where you could where you had guys. Um, yeah, I guess fourth on. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, when you're talking about sort of every song, and and you're getting kind of a clean vocal in that song and a harsh one, you know, Bathory didn't do that quite as often. Like he he might do it on one or two right. songs, on right. say Bloodfire Death. But yeah, where where it's consistent and where it's just very much sort of this uh, Siamese twin, you know, role that it has, where it's sort of like offsetting the other. Uh, yeah, I think I think Ken Nardi deserves actually more credit than Burton Bell. And, not that I want to take anything away from him. I, you know, I dig the first fear factory and I, and I love where that sits in metal history, but uh, sorry, Burton.
2: Yeah. This is not your evening. <laughs> I, can I take it off track real quick? Yeah, of course. I, I want to go back to like my origin story with Anna Crusis. There is What's one there? very formative thing um, that I forgot to mention. And I, You may know this thing, given your ridiculously encyclopedic metal knowledge. You probably do. It was this weird video compilation called Video Sheet Metal. Do you know this? Oh,
1: oh, sheet metal. I know a lot about sheet metal. I have a different okay. story. But, so, yeah. like,
2: all right. So, it was this VHS, and yep. I was on vacation at a beach in, um, I think it was in Saint Simons, Georgia. And in like in, in 1990, summer of 1991. And I picked this thing up and it had, <laughs> it's the weirdest damn thing. It had Pantera. That was the first time I ever heard Pantera. Death Angel, um, Soul Asylum, uh, The Black Crows. Not sure how they fit into all this. This really terrible band called Coup de Gras Had Trouble. It was the first time I ever heard Trouble. Had Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden. Uh, but it had Anna Anacrusis and um i remember watching it and being like super impressed yeah and they were like just seemed like really cool guys too to boot
1: it was interview footage
2: it was interview and live footage and it wasn't even just like interview footage it was like these like hanging out at the house with these guys
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember, okay. Sheet metal was a fanzine and it was run by this guy named Jake wisely. And the reason I know that, I mean, that would be ridiculous if it was just some fanzine and I like, I don't know every fanzine. I would not
2: put that past you by the way. Name
1: a, well, right. But and I know, I know some, but I don't know all of them. The reason I know this so well is because it was just something I picked up at the very same store. Actually, that I bought suffering hour. They had a bunch of zines and I would often buy the ones that looked interesting. And sheet metal was one of those. Uh, I remember they had realm on the cover of one of their, Oh, nice. You know, yeah, exactly. So, and they were Midwest. They were, okay, I, yeah, I, blue, I think it was Minneapolis. So, and their, their, their zines would cover the gamut. I mean, there was an article on Adrian Ballou in one of the later sheet metals. There was an article on, like you said, Jane's Addiction. Like they they really didn't have uh, that sort of more narrow focus that a lot of the metal zines did at the time. So you would see things, you know, they were big proponents of Voivod and Anacruzis and all that, Mind Over 4. And I was starting to get into like writing for fanzines at the time. And I wrote to Jake and I've, I wrote a few things. I, one of my very first interviews I ever did was with Crimson Glory, John Drenning. And um, Sheet Metal ran that. Um, nice. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I got started with. I mean, wrote all terrible stuff because I, w- I just didn't know what I was doing. But um, yeah, it was, it was a cool start and I, and I appreciated Jake. And then later, Jake was one of the founders of Red Decibel, uh, the label. Oh, wow. And that, that was the label that had Coup de Gras, you mentioned, uh, Rapscallion, uh, <laughs> Fat Tuesday. So, some some of these just kind of quirky. Tuesday. Yeah,
2: but they well, up like in, in like a distro deal with Columbia at some point, didn't they?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. The, yeah. I, I and I and, think like, with,
2: like, like season into like, risk.
1: And, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah. And so they, they would sign these quirkier Midwest bands. I think I mentioned it on some previous episode, but my band went up to showcase for them in Minneapolis because they loved uh one of our tapes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played one of our worst shows ever. And that was really disappointing for all of us. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I, I'm aware of Sheet Metal. Let's get back on track. But thank right. you for that story because. Yeah, um, thank you, actually. Because <laughs> you yeah, provide a
2: lot more context.
1: Cool, you brought up Sheet Metal. Let's get into Anna Cruz's second album, Reason. Now, let's just, we got an elephant in the room here. And this elephant is wearing mostly white t shirts and sweatpants. <laughs> Am I right? You are You know right. what I'm talking about here? Yes. <laughs> Suffering Hour had a great cover. It was like a just a dark, foggy, <laughs> misty cathedral, and it was taken by that was a photo taken by Kevin Hybreder, the guitarist. It worked. After that, I, I'd be hard pressed to call any of the album covers good. I, screams I, and Whispers is I, I, I
2: was about to say I'm like I'm, I have a fondness for Screams and Whispers. I'm not sure I'd call it like great or anything.
1: No. Um, Reason is straight up bad. And it, weirdly, it came out on two different labels in two different territories. I think it was on Axis or Active over in Europe, uh, the way Suffering Hour was. Uh, and then by 1990, uh, Metal Blade had picked them up for the second album and, and beyond. And uh, both of the covers sucked, especially the U.S. one with, uh, with Metal Blade. It looks like just like a cheap Polaroid picture of the band, like just fucking, you know, at, at a picnic in the evening. You know, just... <laughs> I don't know I don't I don't understand Like it's just It doesn't have any power to it uh, Certainly not the way The music does no, it, is, it
2: is in no way A reflection Of the music
1: and, and apparently All four of the records Are coming out again On Metal Blade There's a big reissue campaign They did not Redo the cover Of any of these uh, Especially Reason Which is, I don't know Who's behind that But whatever You want to introduce The song we're going to play From Reason Before I keep bitching About uh, album cover artwork
2: Yeah Shut up <laughs> right now we are going to get into 1990s reason we're gonna start with the song that opens the album it's called stop me I think one of the most distinguishing elements here is the introduction of a very real sense of melancholy, Mm -hmm. which, in my opinion, underpins everything that the band did on this record and afterward.
1: Dude, we'll talk about Screams and Whispers when it's time, but that thing is just infused deeply with melancholy, almost so so much so that uh, I sometimes will have a hard time listening to it. But that's what's great about it as well. But yeah, yeah, back to reason. You're absolutely right. This this is the kind of the first time we get that. I think.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. It's still a a much rawer anacrusis than we're going to see on the next two albums. It's looser, I should say too. And there there's like a like a, an organic sort of like band in the studio feel to this record and to Suffering Hour that I don't really feel like you get on the subsequent two records, which are clinical and extremely precise.
1: I think that's what makes Reason kind of that textbook definition transitional record, um, because you do get a band marching forward, not just the melancholy, but there's other elements we can talk about too. But it also has one foot in suffering hour with the rawness and still that guys in the, in the jam room sort of vibe. Because as you, as you say so rightly, you, you really don't get that on the next two. The next two are truly album albums. Oh, yeah, know. for sure. Also, I, I failed to mention this other guy. This Reason is produced by Ken Nardi, and then the band are accredited after him. And then a guy named Sean uh, McMahon, McMahon, Don't know who he is, but do credit where it's due. Not their greatest production, but also a step up in terms of creativity with the songwriting, I guess.
2: Yeah, oh Yeah, I think so.
1: Interesting choice, Mister Ginn. You picked that one. <laughs>
2: I did. Well, I mean, because it, it shows yet another shade of the band, and it shows, I think, another step in its evolution. It, it, it's plotting, it's dour, and and, and I love that. Um, and I yeah. don't feel like you ever get another Anacrusis song quite like this one.
1: It's true. It's true. They would play with elements of this, certainly right. the, the, the melancholy and that slower pace. I, we, heard, we hear a little bit of that Trouble Influence sneaking in. Um, there's two things that come to mind for me with Afraid to Feel. We start hearing non-metal influences come in, and we'll address that in a second. Uh, but we also hear the bass forward presence. You know, John Emery's really coming through there, and he continues to. And I think he's got a similar role in the band um, and a similar presence as Blackie from Voivod. Not to mention voivod again, but Jesus Christ come on, we can't help it uh, but it's there Have, have we it, been voivod every single episode uh ninety nine point eight percent of them i think yeah
2: <laughs> but you're so, you're right it it is there, and I would be hard pressed to believe that these guys were not tuned into voivod
1: but yeah the, the- the the bass presence, let's speak to that it's such a huge part of their sound going forward
2: oh i w- I would say that the um aside from the very I mean, like, staggeringly innovative guitar language on the next two records. I, you know, yep. and, and I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but, like, listening back to this, some of the stuff, and, and I listen to this stuff regularly. I mean, they're, they're a band in regular rotation for me, but, like, going back and listening to this with a certain intent, if, you know, Manic Impressions were to come out today with an updated production, it would not sound dated in the least.
1: No, they were always a little bit futuristic I, in that sense. Yeah,
2: but the, but the, you were dead on the money in terms of the importance of bass in this band. Um, yeah. And there's no metal band that has quite the same approach to it as Hannah Cruz's.
1: No, because he was carrying a lot of the melody. And he often gets these breaks. You know, I think they wrote for him in a way where like, okay, here's a break and John's going to do his thing. And he's going to put brand new strings on his bass because it always sounded like he was using brand new strings. Like they're oh, the yeah. really steely sound, uh, really the newness of, of strings. I mean, you know what that sounds like. And um, his was a tone that was just so cutting. And and I applaud him and I applaud them for giving the bass such a presence because this was not uh, a subgenre of metal uh, where you talked about bass very much. Well, and And, I think it's
2: also a nod to their post-punk influences. And you're talking about a band that put a cover of a new model Army song on their third record. And they're like obviously deeply into the Cure, probably into a lot of the sort of more um, rock Focused post-punk bands like Chameleons, um, Sad Lovers and Giants, uh, The Sound, you know, band, bands where the bass played as much a role, Joy Division maybe even, as as the guitar. Like the guitar would, you know, provide texture, melody, and, and the bass would like somehow um, buttress everything. And and kind of guide it. And like you say, the bass is not employed to that extent, um, because clearly this is a metal band. Guitars are the voice of metal. But like uh, bass in Anacrucis gets a much more dominant role than it does in most other metal bands.
1: Definitely. Uh, And what you're talking about with some of those post-punk influences, especially the more rock-oriented ones, you can hear that also in Ken Nardi's melodic choices in terms of his vocal delivery Mm -hmm. uh, and the way he would write those melodic passages. I think that's coming from somewhere quite outside of metal. Totally. Uh, We'll we'll probably hear a lot more of that as we move on to the the last two records. Let's stick with reason uh, for what is, I think, probably most Anna Cruz's fans... Uh, favorite songs Uh, I know it's one of yours and it's one of mine Child Inside oh yeah hear a little bit of a uh, paradise lost sneaking in there at the mm, end but mm. uh, that would have been of course a precursor to paradise lost but you know that you know what i'm talking about again the melancholy that, that wandering gothic,
2: wandering guitar yeah
1: and it creates that sort of gothic vibe so um uh, there you go and
2: there is always this sort of oblique gothic vibe that hovers over anacrusis
1: For sure. We mentioned how they were kind of ahead of their time. And I think in in that sense, they are too, because that, of course, became a lot more acceptable and a lot more common uh, as a trait in metal going forward into the 90s. Actually, um, there's something that uh, Kevin told me when I interviewed him for Mean Deviation, and he said something like um, in 91 – which is where we're going to be now because uh, we're jumping to the third album, Manic Impressions. Um, he said in 91, some record company executives said um, the world isn't ready for Anacruzis yet. And he said that that planted like a seed in their heads, that they had to get used to that and accept that they were on their own, you know, Yeah, sure. Um, as they roll into the 90s. And I think I think there's that's kind of interesting because it, it just does point to how particular and peculiar they really were. And we get Manic Impressions, which uh, is remarkable for a number of reasons the two I think of immediately the first one is the new model army cover at position number two on the album and it works fantastically yeah well, not it was nothing, like
2: a decade before I knew that that belonged to someone else
1: that's just it it doesn't jump out as a cover it, it sort of it sounds fits like right into the song yeah it fits right into the material uh and the other thing is just the production of it how sharp <laughs> and and steely and antiseptic it is it is a good nothing way. like this. Yeah, it's close to maybe like a nothing face in its cleanliness, but it's it, it goes so, I think further. it goes so
2: much farther than that.
1: It goes even further. Yeah. Let's just take a listen and um behold a little bit and we'll, we'll kind of assess it when we get back. This is a tune called Something Real. I think something real and pretty much this whole album is where you hear Ken becoming so artful with his use of the screech. It's so potent now. And it it always arrives in the songs very well-timed or or well-considered. And I think among the other facets of his delivery, he's just really an extraordinary vocalist. If we haven't made that known already.
2: No, he really is. And I I think he really grows into uh, like, you know, he's one of these guys that has a limited range maybe limited sure. technical um, facility, but like understands how to make the most of what he does have. Oh yeah. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. He, he really just matures into a, a truly great vocalist as far as I'm concerned.
1: He's so good on these, on these last two Anna Cruz's albums. And I think musically, you know, the textures we hear in that song, there, these ringing kind of kaleidoscopic layers. Uh, this is why it's my favorite Anna Cruz's album. I know that we could debate that back and forth forever. Cause I think you're a, a screams and whispers, man, if pressed, um, if pressed, if pressed, but, but, but yeah, it's just uh, the recording, just everything about it is great, but we are we're, we're kind of ignoring the guitars. What about the, what about the guitars on this album?
2: I don't know that there's another band in metal that has the same sort of approach to guitar harmony that Anna Crucis does. And even right. just making the most out of the instrument, even early on, they were using harmonics and dissonance and, you know, open chords um, and, and really sort of exploring the full capacity of the guitar. Um, yeah. And they continue to do that um, and they continue to refine it. And I mean, I I just think that those guys are like one of the really, truly exceptional dual guitar bands in metal up there with like Nasty Savage.
1: Nasty Savage, and, and I think of Trouble, and again, and like, and Cruz—great, yeah, great point, great. Point. And Anna Cruz's influence, but you know, Rick Wartel and Bruce Franklin, when they would dive into the solo part, you knew who this was, you knew what band that you were listening to, and not just you know. The, the leads but even the rhythmic sensibilities and how they played off each yeah. other like it was just this tandem that it couldn't have been performed by another person with Rick or another person with Bruce and I think it's the same way with Ken and Kevin uh, I think they play off each other so well uh, throughout their discography and especially on these last two albums and and the sound you know by this time Ken had just perfected this production and this Anna Cruz's sound where they sounded like no other much less the delivery of what they were giving you that would that also sounded like no other but like the guitars were like these cosmic razors or something and they were played with,
2: god they were played dude. With- I, I have to say so jeff is responsible for two canvas two future canvas hilarious <laughs> song titles one being fractured ambushes the other being cosmic razors thank
1: you jeff <laughs> Hey, man, I'm, I'm building an EP for you at least. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, but that's how they they come into me. You know, if I'm, if I'm in, the, in the listening room and I'm thinking aesthetically or texturally. Right. There are these kind of cosmic razors. And they're played with such incredible finesse. And I think this is what makes Manic Impression so futuristic and so cosmic to me. Now, to jump to something else beyond that, to kind of extrapolate, I've always thought of Ana Cruz's music as very spacey or cosmic. It has that edge to it, but it's weird because thematically, their song titles and lyrics were total real-life stuff, almost to the level of being like a hardcore band. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, earlier when we were talking about Melancholy, um, I was thinking about Fate's Warning and like um, that sort of oppressive realism.
1: Well, yeah, that's a good call. Yep, yep. Personally, okay, I I wish they always would have had, like, a trippier persuasion lyrically, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, this band is so good. It hardly matters. It's hardly something I've thought about. But it is – it's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah,
2: I'm kind of with you. You know, given my druthers, I might prefer a different approach. But it sort of grounds it, too. You know, because the music is so futuristic and so out, like, vis-a-vis most metal. It kind of gives it, like, a human quality
1: yeah no, I think it deepens their expression. I think it deepens what Ana is and it kind of sets them apart, certainly. let's uh, Let's listen to two in a row f- uh, from Manic Impressions. We're gonna listen to snippets of explained away and idle hours. right man yeah i'm liking what i'm hearing I, I like the santa cruz's band it's a pretty good band <laughs> check them out you should tell you what um that album uh features a drummer named chad smith not the guy from red hot chili peppers but another chad smith interestingly he uh later he this is the only Anna Cruz's album he was on and he's uh from st louis but in 2005 he played on an album recorded by Geezer, the Geezer Butler, an album called Oomwork, which yeah. I have to admit, I've never heard, but I've heard other Geezer solo stuff. And I know that as much as I just treasure his role in Black Sabbath in every possible way, his solo stuff is just not my cup of tea.
2: Left alone.
1: Left He's, alone. What's, he,
2: what's no, I'm saying left alone to his own devices.
1: Geezer um, Butler yeah.
2: is not dependable.
1: Yeah, perhaps not. Um, Chad Smith also played in 1994 with a, a band called Pavlov's Dog, which were like a 70s kind of art rock, kind of prog band, um, very high-pitched male vocalist, something I could never totally get into, but I um, feel like on paper I should. But uh, interesting resume, man. Geezer, Anna Cruz's, and Pavlov's Dog. Very strange. I'm glad
2: he has uh, Anna Cruz's.
1: He replaced Dean Castronovo in G Z R, so that's interesting. Yeah, I,
2: who's a you know, a great drummer and a oh, terrible formidable. terrible human being. Oh, I didn't know that. He's a wife beater.
1: Oh, okay. Moving on. <laughs> Chad Smith. No, but what do we hear there with uh, Explained Away in Idle Hours? I mean, other than typical Anna Cruz's greatness, but uh, this is this is quite a ways away now from suffering hour.
2: Oh man, yeah, totally. You know, angular Super clean, like, like and, and two, like, I think you get a certain differentiation between the instruments in this era of Anacrucis that we don't get earlier. Like, every instrument has its place in the sound field now. It seems yeah. like almost kind of architectural.
1: That's a great way to put it. I, I've always thought of I've always thought of as maybe like sculptural. It, well, I mean,
2: same. same thing. Yeah. Same
1: idea. Yeah. It's, it's same the, idea. the architecture. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, anything to say about the album cover?
2: <laughs> not really. It's better than reason. It's better than like, reason. It's but, one of those but, like. But you know, still sucks.
1: <laughs> maybe maybe a cool idea, but oops, <laughs> the, the, the rendering itself is not great. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, we, we, we love this album. Plus, you know, we're not even listening to, like, far too long. Oh, we,
2: we left a ton of stuff on the table.
1: You have to with this band. I mean, there, there's so much good stuff. But, like, Paint a Picture, the opening track is great. And, of course, the new Model Army song, I Love the World. Oh, uh, really, really great cover. And, you know, I will drop Voivod again because I think it's pertinent here. I love the world fits into manic impressions the way astronomy does into nothing face where it doesn't sound like a cover. It fits with the material. Um, it just seamlessly kind of interacts with the originals. And yeah, I, I, mean, think that's it,
2: what, I think it, it's hard to do. Oh, I mean, it's, it's damn near impossible. Yeah. Um, and, it's so rare to find, you know, a, a, a sort of kinship where you can integrate it with that, that level of seamlessness
1: where it becomes your own, you know, it's your own song. It's on your, it's your album and it fits there uh, as the originals do. Yeah. It doesn't happen often, but it happened here. Anything else you want to say about manic or before we move on to uh, screams and whispers, buy it, (laughs) please do, please do buy it. Uh, You know, the reissues are coming out. I don't know a whole lot of detail. I, I, I hope they put them out on CD. I'm definitely assuming they come out on vinyl, but it might be a good time to uh, pre-order those things. Uh, Metal blade has them all. We've been kind of circling around some Metal Blade lately, haven't we? Thought industry. We really yeah. have, yeah. Well, you know, it's Metal Blade. They're going to come up. <laughs> yeah. They had another band called Fate's Warning that we kind of like. Pretty cool. Yeah.
2: Well, Screams and Whispers. Ancient. Uh, what's that? I'm sorry, I'm just did you just, say, did you just say ancient? Yeah, I'm just being an asshole.
1: Well, uh, beats the hell out of me? <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along, uh, Screams and Whispers comes out in the magic year of, you want to say it, I know it. 1993. Girl, come over here, girl. Let me tell
0: you about a little year called
2: 1993.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let's check out Sound the Alarm. This was the leadoff track. And uh, also the video, and I probably the one that most people know if they know this. And uh, we, we will we'll, we'll confront what we're listening to here in a sec. I'm more wailing from Ken, man. Give it to me. I can't get enough of that stuff.
2: I love that he just keeps doing it. I mean, I, really, <laughs> yeah. like, I love that he didn't sort of outgrow that. You know, I mean, yeah, his voice became more and more developed over the years. But, like, he retained that early ferocity.
1: For sure. I mean, most of those kind of guys – uh, that start with pretty much 100% ferocity, or most of the time. We talked about Ken, of course, his early stuff being the, the dichotomy of clean to harsh. But yeah, he never dropped it. And most of those guys kind of do. And uh, glad that he didn't. And it's just sounding more potent than ever. Something strikes me about Screams and Whispers, uh, and it's, again, the production. I, th- I think there's this is such a production band when you get into the third and fourth albums that... This has the cleanliness and the sharpness of manic impressions, yet it's it's rounder and fuller at the same time.
2: It adds much more depth, no doubt about that. There's a brittleness to uh, to manic impressions.
1: Totally, and it kind of,
2: totally. it kind of, it's funny. Like it, it sort of mirrors the um, the cover. You know, the, like, yeah, the, the broken like the glass, glass and, glass and yeah,
1: mirrors. Yeah, sure. Never really thought
2: about uh, that until now, but.
1: Yeah, this this uh this works on all levels this is a this is a masterful album I said I like manic Impressions more sometimes that's just a, a thing of mood I love this album I, not sound the alarm but there are there's so many other tracks on this album that just kill me with the melancholy though it, it,
2: like it, picking tracks from this was so yeah. agonizing
1: yeah that's why I gave the job to you
2: <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean really it was very very difficult for me to pick three songs.
1: Because there's too many profits. There's release. There's, uh, um, yeah,
2: I mean, the album's like kind of almost perfect.
1: I don't know why they tagged on the remix of release at the end. That seems kind of like, yeah, unnecessary, but it's there. But I think we can assume that the album ends with brotherhood, the album proper anyway. Uh, Another great song, but uh, no, you made some great picks. One of them is tools of separation. Probably my favorite song on the album. I hope people hear why. Gorgeous, man! I love all that orchestral, gothic, strange that, textural.
2: Yeah, that is definitely one thing that we get on this album that we have not gotten before. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're right, man. It's it's
1: beautiful. There's a lot of that throughout this album too. Mm-hmm. Like they, they do bring in that orchestral stroke quite a bit more. Yep. This album featured a guy named Paul Miles on drums. Uh, this was the only Adna Cruz's album he was on. And what is with the these Anna Cruz's drummers and their weird resumes, because he hasn't done a lot of other stuff otherwise, but he is credited with backing vocals on an uphill battle record. <laughs> now this you may <laughs> I know, right? You may you okay? Oh my God.
2: I didn't know that Uphill Battle needed backing vocals.
1: I didn't know Uphill Battle would ever be named on this podcast, well, but here it here is. here we go, man. Here we go. They were well, like Red
2: Conen's an uphill battle fan, I believe.
1: Perhaps they, uh, yeah, I, I suppose so. Uh, they were on relapse um, were. for a couple of albums. They're they're they are no more. They were kind of a metalcore meets grindcore band, and somehow Paul Paul Miles ended up doing some backing vocals for okay. this band, who are or I think are from California. So it's, none of this makes any sense to me, man. I'm I'm confused.
2: Yeah, yeah no. God, that's so strange. I mean, He's it, a great drummer, though.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. they certainly found guys in St. Louis to to make it happen, for sure. So hats off to Paul Miles and, of course, the rest of the guys. Yeah, no,
2: I, I absolutely adore his drumming on this record.
1: Let's check out another song. This is a, a bit from My Soul's Affliction. like that we get more prominent john Emery there on bass
2: oh yeah for sure yeah you get a very clear delineation of the instruments in that one
1: so that's anacrusis those are the that's a sampling of the four albums a little overview uh we do hope you buy all of this stuff they failed to maintain the momentum and uh you know it was tough times in 93 94 i mean no matter the quality of the material. Everybody knows what was going on in the mid-90s for metal, and it was just hard for these kind of bands to find any traction. Uh, they were already cult-level type metal bands anyway. They just kind of faded. Ken Nardi said after they broke up, he spent some time recording still, really not not having much purpose with the material, but he rearranged uh, versions of... Older Ana Cruz songs like "Stop Me" and "Afraid to Feel," mm-hmm. both of which we featured here, and uh, a song called "Far Too Long." He did arrangements for bass, drums, guitar, and acoustic guitar, and he says he combined them with full orchestral arrangements. I'm assuming that uh, if he recorded anything, it was just you know on on the synthesizer or something like that, uh, sampler. He said it could best be described as Slayer meets the Moody Blues, <laughs> <laughs> which I always find interesting. Um, Sounds pretty good yeah and then and then he came back eventually um I, I think the band did you know i I know the band did some reunion stuff, and uh i'm not I'm not sure I think Kevin Hydebreder wasn't there for all of that uh however, Ken had assembled a ton of material with the intention of putting out sort of a new Anna Cruz's album with the rest of the guys didn't totally pan out that it ended up being. Anacruzis, uh, John Emery is only on four tracks of the, uh, what, the 28?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and we're talking about the Ken Nardy solo album, Dancing with the Past. This was ultimately the thing that ended up uh, coming out. Uh, it was supposed to be under the Cruz's name. I have no idea if the Anacruzis album would have been two hours and 37 minutes long. As it is, that's how long the Ken album is, and uh, I got to tell you, man, I love this album, but it's way, 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 way too long. <laughs> it could have been three albums. No, um, no, absolutely, you- it,
2: it, it's it's it, it's like discouragingly long. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I had to ta- I had to take it in pieces, you know. I Like, I I know, like when I got it, like I listened to the first ten tracks. And got into those next 10 tracks, next 10 tracks.
1: That's about the way to do it. And I think if you selected your favorite 10 tracks, you'd have another great Anacruz's album because it really, the material itself is not far removed from Ana. album. Oh, Cruz's. not at all. Not at all. It's clearly uh, the DNA of Anna Cruzs I'm glad it exists. Uh, our buddy Matt Radzinski at Dive Bomb Records put it out uh, in 2014 And uh, some great moments on there, if you can uh, plow through it all. We selected two. The second one is a song called Symbiotic that I think kind of echoes maybe his orchestral slash moody blues comment. Right. That's definitely more in that vein. And then what I think is really the best song in the album, uh, a thing called This Killer in My House. Uh, Let's check out both of these. This is from Ken Nardi's album from 2014.
2: was the guiding light in Anacrusis um, because you hear a lot of what he was building up to this point. And, and in fact, a lot of the music that was captured was recorded, you know, and written between 1993 and what, two thousand and and
1: 10, 11. Yeah. Yeah. Thereabouts.
2: Yep. I mean, so yeah. And he was just kind of continuing along his way, like following his own voice you just hear, you hear the same melancholy, you hear the same inventive guitar playing, um, but you hear uh, an increased reliance upon uh, orchestral devices to sort of get that pain across.
1: Thankfully, he didn't drop the squeal because we hear a little bit of that in Killer in My House. Yeah. We, hear, we hear throughout the album. <laughs> and that, that gives me some just great comfort to know that he uh, he still got that. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Love the Ken Nardi squeal. Man, that's if there's one takeaway from this episode, it's all about the squeal, baby. All about
2: the squeal, baby.
1: Thanks to listener Rob Hughes for his donation uh, this past week. You can do that too. Just check the show notes on every episode going forward. We'll have an easy PayPal link for you if you care to do that. Please also write us at RadicalResearchPodcast at gmail.com or hit the contact button at RadicalResearch.org. Love to hear from all you freaks. Don't forget we have a blog section there. We haven't updated it too much in the past. Well, we haven't updated it much since we've started, but we will uh, continue to try to find great material. I know Hunter's still working on his solofold piece for that. Uh, We just got something from Dustin Donaldson of Thought Industry. Uh, We posted the first part, we will post a Q&A that Hunter and I did with him sometime next week, probably by the time you hear this. Uh, so please check that out as well. Next time, we are going to definitely take a bit of a left turn. We're going to go back into the Prague world a little bit, for, well, quite a bit, for a show on, I guess what's called the Canterbury scene or the Canterbury sound. This type of Prague ranges from the whimsical to the wild, Uh, usually some level of weird. Uh, Its roots are in the 60s, and they spread amongst a geographic assemblage of bands who we'll touch upon in 90 minutes or so. A few names for you to know and remember until then. Uh, Soft Machine, Caravan, Egg, Steve Hillage, Quiet Sun. Who am I forgetting?
2: Hatfield in the North.
1: Hatfield in the North. National Health.
2: Oh, National Health.
1: Yeah, great stuff, man. Some of the stuff will, uh, will knock you out, we promise. Can't wait for Radical Research 35. That's going to be a lot of fun. Some really, really great prog delving uh, for us and for you, hopefully, as well. See you then. Keep prog weird.